0: Day 7 of Totus Tuis' Novena with quotes from John Paul II's Encyclical Evangelium Vitae The Church has received the Gospel as a proclamation and a source of joy and salvation. She has received it as a gift from Jesus sent by the Father to preach good news to the poor. She has received it through the Apostles sent by Christ to the whole world. Born from this evangelizing activity, the Church hears every day the echo of St. Paul's words of warning. Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel. As Paul VI wrote, evangelization is the grace and vocation proper to the Church, her deepest identity. She exists, in order to evangelize. Evangelization is an all-embracing progressive activity through which the Church participates in the prophetic, priestly and royal mission of the Lord Jesus. It is therefore inextricably linked to preaching, celebration and the service of charity. Evangelization is a profoundly ecclesial act which calls all the various workers of the gospel to action according to their individual charisms and ministry. This is also the case with regard to the proclamation of the Gospel of Life, an integral part of that Gospel which is Jesus Christ himself. We are at the service of this Gospel, sustained by the awareness that we have received it as a gift and are sent to preach it to all humanity, to the ends of the earth, With humility and gratitude, we know that we are the people of life and for life, and this is how we present ourselves to everyone. We are the people of life because God, in his unconditional love, has given us the gospel of life, and by this same gospel we have been transformed and saved. We have been ransomed by the author of life at the price of his precious blood, Through the waters of baptism, we have been made a part of him, as branches which draw nourishment and fruitfulness from the one tree. Interiorly renewed by the grace of the Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, we have become a people for life, and we are called to act accordingly. We have been sent, for us being at the service of life is not a boast but rather a duty born of our awareness of being God's own people that we may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light on our journey we are guided and sustained by the law of love a love which has as its source and model the son of God made man who by dying gave life to the world We have been sent as a people. Everyone has an obligation to be at the service of life. This is a properly ecclesial responsibility, which requires concerted and generous action by all the members and by all sectors of the Christian community. This community commitment does not, however, eliminate or lessen the responsibility of each individual, called by the Lord to become the neighbour of everyone. Go! and do likewise. Together we all sense our duty to preach the gospel of life, to celebrate it in the liturgy and in our whole existence, and to serve it with the various programs and structures which support and promote life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. We proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Jesus is the only gospel. We have nothing further to say or any other witness to bear. To proclaim Jesus is itself to proclaim life. For Jesus is the word of life. In Him, life was made manifest. He Himself is the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. By the gift of the Spirit, this same life has been bestowed on us. It is in being destined to life in its fullness, to eternal life, that every person's earthly life acquires its full meaning. Enlightened by this gospel of life, we feel a need to proclaim it and to bear witness to it in all its marvellous newness. Since it is one with Jesus himself, who makes all things new and conquers the oldness which comes from sin and leads to death, this gospel exceeds every human expectation and reveals the sublime heights to which the dignity of the human person is raised through grace. This is how St. Gregory of Nyssa understands it. Man, as a being, is of no account. He is dust, grass, vanity. But once he is adopted by the God of the universe as a son, he becomes part of the family of that being, whose excellence and greatness no one can see, hear or understand. What words, thoughts or flight of the Spirit can praise the superabundance of this grace. Man surpasses his nature. Mortal, he becomes mortal. Perishable, he becomes imperishable. Fleeting, he becomes eternal. Human, he becomes divine. Gratitude and joy at the incomparable dignity of man impel us to share this message with everyone. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. We need to bring the gospel of life to the heart of every man and woman, and to make it penetrate every part of society. This involves, above all, proclaiming the core of this gospel. It is the proclamation of a living God who is close to us, who calls us to profound communion with himself and awakens in us the certain hope of eternal life. It is the affirmation of the inseparable connection between the person, his life and his bodliness. It is the presentation of human life as a life of relationship, a gift of God, the fruit and sign of his love. It is the proclamation that Jesus has a unique relationship with every person, which enables us to see in every human face the face of Christ. It is the call for a sincere gift of self as the fullest way to realize our personal freedom. It also involves making clear all the consequences of this Gospel. These can be summed up as follows. Human life, as a gift of God, is sacred and inviolable. For this reason, procured abortion and euthanasia are absolutely unacceptable. Not only must human life not be taken, but it must be protected with loving concern. The meaning of life is found in giving and receiving love, and in this light human sexuality and procreation reach their true and full significance. Love also gives meaning to suffering and death. Despite the mystery which surrounds them, they can become saving events. Respect for life requires that science and technology should always be at the service of man and his integral development. Society as a whole must respect, defend and promote the dignity of every human person, at every moment and in every condition of that person's life. To be truly a people at the service of life, we must propose these truths constantly and courageously from the very first proclamation of the gospel, and thereafter in catechesis, in the various forms of preaching, in personal dialogue, and in all educational activity. Teachers, catechists, and theologians have the task of emphasizing the anthropological reasons upon which respect for every human life is based. In this way, by making the newness of the gospel of life shine forth, we can also help everyone discover in the light of reason and of personal experience how the Christian message fully reveals what man is and the meaning of his being and existence. We shall find important points of contact and dialogue also with non-believers in our common commitment to the establishment of a new culture of life. Faced with so many opposing points of view, and a widespread rejection of sound doctrine concerning human life, we can feel that Paul's entreaty to Timothy is also addressed to us. Preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke and exhort. Be unfailing in patience and in teaching. This exhortation should resound with special force in the hearts of those members of the church. Who directly share, in different ways, in her mission as teacher of the truth. May it resound above all for us who are bishops. We are the first ones called to be untiring preachers of the gospel of life. We are also entrusted with the task of ensuring that the doctrine, which is once again being set forth in this encyclical, is faithfully handed on in its integrity. We must use appropriate means to defend the faithful. From all teaching which is contrary to it. We need to make sure that in theological faculties, seminaries, and Catholic institutions, sound doctrine is taught, explained, and more fully investigated. May Paul's exhortations strike a chord in all theologians, pastors, teachers, and in all those responsible for catechesis and the formation of consciences. Aware of their specific role, may they never be so grievously irresponsible as to portray the truth and their own mission by proposing personal ideas contrary to the gospel of life as faithfully presented and interpreted by the Magisterium. In the proclamation of this gospel we must not fear hostility or unpopularity and we must refuse any compromise or ambiguity which might conform us to the world's way of thinking. We must be in the world but not of the world drawing our strength from Christ, who by His death and resurrection has overcome the world. Because we have been sent into the world as a people for life, our proclamation must also become a genuine celebration of the gospel of life. This celebration, with the evocative power of its gestures, symbols and rites, should become a precious and significant setting In which the beauty and grandeur of this gospel is handed on. For this to happen, we need first of all to foster in ourselves and in others a contemplative outlook. Such an outlook arises from faith in the God of life, who has created every individual as a wonder. It is the outlook of those who see life in its deeper meaning, who grasp its utter gratuitousness, its beauty, and its invitation to freedom and responsibility. It is the outlook of those who do not presume to take possession of reality, but instead accept it as a gift, discovering in all things the reflection of the Creator, and seeing in every person His living image. This outlook does not give in to discouragement when confronted by those who are sick, suffering, Outcast or at death's door. Instead, in all these situations it feels challenged to find meaning, and precisely in these circumstances it is open to perceiving in the face of every person a call to encounter, dialogue, and solidarity. It is time for all of us to adopt this outlook, and with deep religious awe to rediscover the ability to revere and honour every person as Paul VI invited us to do in one of his Christmas messages. Inspired by this contemplative outlook, the new people of the redeemed cannot but respond with songs of joy, praise and thanksgiving for the priceless gift of life, for the mystery of every individual's call to share through Christ in the life of grace and in an existence of unending communion with God our Creator and Father. To celebrate the gospel of life means to celebrate the God of life, the God who gives life. We must celebrate eternal life, from which every other life proceeds. From this, in proportion to its capacities, every being which in any way participates in life, receives life. This divine life, which is above every other life, gives and preserves life every life and every living moment proceed from this life which transcends all life and every principle of life. It is to this that souls owe their incorruptibility, and because of this all animals and plants live, which receive only the faintest glimmer of life. To men, beings made of spirit and matter, life grants life. Even if we should abandon life, Because of its overflowing love for man, it converts us and calls us back to itself. Not only this, it promises to bring us, soul and body, to perfect life, to immortality. It is too little to say that this life is alive. It is the principle of life, the cause and soul wellspring of life. Every living thing must contemplate it and give it praise. It is life which overflows with life. Like the psalmist, we too in our daily prayer as individuals and as a community praise and bless God our Father who knitted us together in our mother's womb and saw and loved us while we were still without form. We exclaim with overwhelming joy I give you thanks that I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. You know me through and through. Indeed, despite its hardships, its hidden mysteries, its suffering and its inevitable frailty, this mortal life is a most beautiful thing, a marvel ever new and moving, an event worthy of being exalted in joy and glory. Moreover, man and his life appear to us not only as one of the greatest marvels of creation, for God has granted to man a dignity which is near to divine. In every child which is born, and in every person who lives or dies, we see the image of God's glory. We celebrate this glory in every human being, a sign of the living God, an icon of Jesus Christ. We are called to express wonder and gratitude for the gift of life, and to welcome, savour, and share the gospel of life, not only in our personal and community prayer, but above all in the celebrations of the liturgical year. Particularly important in this regard are the sacraments, the efficacious signs of the presence and saving action of the Lord Jesus in Christian life. The sacraments make us sharers in divine life, and provide the spiritual strength. Necessary to experience life, suffering and death in their fullest meaning. Thanks to a genuine rediscovery and a better appreciation of the significance of these rites, our liturgical celebrations, especially celebrations of the sacraments, will be ever more capable of expressing the full truth about birth, life, suffering and death, and will help us to live these moments as a participation in the paschal mystery of the crucified and risen Christ. In celebrating the gospel of life, we also need to appreciate and make good use of the wealth of gestures and symbols present in the traditions and customs of different cultures and peoples. There are special times and ways in which the peoples of different nations and cultures express joy for a newborn life, respect for and protection of individual human lives, care for the suffering or needy, closeness to the elderly and the dying, participation in the sorrow of those who mourn, and hope and desire for immortality. In view of this, and following the suggestion made by the Cardinals in the Consistory of 1991, I propose that a day for life be celebrated each year in every country, as already established by some Episcopal conferences. The celebration of this day should be planned and carried out with the active participation of all the sectors of the local Church. Its primary purpose should be to foster in individual consciences, in families, in the church and in civil society, a recognition of the meaning and value of human life at every stage and in every condition. Particular attention should be drawn to the seriousness of abortion and euthanasia, without neglecting other aspects of life, which from time to time deserve to be given careful consideration, as occasion and circumstances demand. As part of the spiritual worship acceptable to God, the gospel of life is to be celebrated above all in daily living, which should be filled with self-giving love for others. In this way, our lives will become a genuine and responsible acceptance of the gift of life, and a heartfelt song of praise and gratitude to God, who has given us this gift. This is already happening in the many different acts of selfless generosity, often humble and hidden, Carried out by men and women, children and adults, the young and the old, the healthy and the sick. It is in this context, so humanly rich and filled with love, that heroic actions too are born. These are the most solemn celebration of the gospel of life, for they proclaim it by the total gift of self. They are the radiant manifestation of the highest degree of love which is to give one's life for the person loved. They are a sharing in the mystery of the cross, in which Jesus reveals the value of every person, and how life attains its fullness in the sincere gift of self. Over and above such outstanding moments, there is an everyday heroism, made up of gestures of sharing, big or small, which build up an authentic culture of life. A particularly praiseworthy example of such gestures is the donation of organs, performed in an ethically acceptable manner, with a view to offering a chance of health, and even of life itself, to the sick who sometimes have no other hope. Part of this daily heroism is also the silent but effective and eloquent witness of all those brave mothers who devote themselves to their own family, without reserve, who suffer in giving birth to their children, and who are ready to make any effort, to face any sacrifice, in order to pass on to them the best of themselves. In living out their mission, these heroic women do not always find the support in the world around them. On the contrary, the cultural models, frequently promoted and broadcast by the media, do not encourage motherhood. In the name of progress and modernity, THE VALUES OF FIDELITY, CHASTITY, SACRIFICE, TO WHICH A HOST OF CHRISTIAN WIVES AND MOTHERS HAVE borne AND CONTINUE TO BEAR OUTSTANDING WITNESS, ARE PRESENTED AS obsolete. WE THANK YOU, HEROIC MOTHERS, FOR YOUR INVINCIBLE LOVE. WE THANK YOU FOR YOUR INTREPID TRUST IN GOD, AND IN HIS LOVE. WE THANK YOU FOR THE SACRIFICE OF YOUR LIFE. IN THE PASCHAL MYSTERY, Christ restores to you the gift you gave Him. Indeed, He has the power to give you back the life you gave Him as an offering. By virtue of our sharing in Christ's royal mission, our support and promotion of human life must be accomplished through the service of charity, which finds expression in personal witness, various forms of volunteer work, social activity and political commitment. This is a particularly pressing need at the present time, when the culture of death so forcefully opposes the culture of life, and often seems to have the upper hand. But even before that, it is a need which springs from faith working through love. As the letter of James admonishes us, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. In our service of charity, we must be inspired and distinguished by a specific attitude. We must care for the other, as a person for whom God has made us responsible. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to become neighbours to everyone and to show special favour to those who are poorest, most alone and most in need. In helping the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, as well as the child in the womb and the old person who is suffering or near death, we have the opportunity to serve Jesus. HE HIMSELF SAID, AS YOU DID IT TO ONE OF THE LEAST OF THESE, MY BRETHREN, YOU DID IT TO ME. HENCE WE CANNOT BUT FEEL CALLED TO ACCOUNT AND JUDGED BY THE EVER-RELEVANT WORDS OF ST. JOHN Chrysostom. DO YOU WISH TO HONOR THE BODY OF CHRIST? DO NOT NEGLECT IT WHEN YOU FIND IT NAKED. DO NOT DO IT HOMAGE HERE IN THE CHURCH WITH SILK FABRICS, only to neglect it outside, where it suffers cold and nakedness. Where life is involved, the service of charity must be profoundly consistent. It cannot tolerate bias and discrimination, for human life is sacred and inviolable at every stage and in every situation. It is an indivisible good. We need, then, to show care for all life, and for the life of everyone. Indeed, at an even deeper level, we need to go to the very roots of life and love. It is this deep love for every man and woman which has given rise down the centuries to an outstanding history of charity, a history which has brought into being in the Church and society many forms of service to life which evoke admiration from all unbiased observers, Every Christian community, with a renewed sense of responsibility, must continue to write this history through various kinds of pastoral and social activity. To this end, appropriate and effective programs of support for new life must be implemented, with special closeness to mothers who, even without the help of the fathers, are not afraid to bring their children into the world and to raise them. Similar care must be shown for the life of the marginalized or suffering, especially in its final phases. All of this involves a patient and fearless work of education aimed at encouraging one and all to bear each other's burdens. It requires a continuous promotion of vocations to service, particularly among the young. It involves the implementation of long-term practical projects and initiatives inspired by the Gospel. Many are the means towards this end which need to be developed with skill and serious commitment. At this first stage of life, centres for natural methods of regulating fertility should be promoted as a valuable help to responsible parenthood, in which all individuals, and in the first place the child, are recognised and respected in their own right, and where every decision is guided by the ideal of the sincere gift of self. Marriage and family counselling agencies by their specific work of guidance and prevention, carried out in accordance with an anthropology consistent with the Christian vision of the person, of the couple and of sexuality, also offer valuable help in rediscovering the meaning of love and life, and in supporting and accompanying every family in its mission as the sanctuary of life. Newborn life is also served by centres of assistance and homes or centres where new life receives a welcome. Thanks to the work of such centres, many unmarried mothers and couples in difficulty discover new hope and find assistance and support in overcoming hardship and the fear of accepting a newly conceived life, or life which has just come into the world. When life is challenged by the conditions of hardship, maladjustment, sickness or rejection, other programmes, such as communities for treating drug addiction, residential communities for minors or the mentally ill, care and relief centres for AIDS patients, associations for solidarity, especially towards the disabled, are eloquent expressions of what charity is able to devise in order to give everyone new reasons for hope and practical possibilities for life. And when earthly existence draws to a close, it is again charity which finds the most appropriate means for enabling the elderly, especially those who can no longer look after themselves, and the terminally ill, To enjoy genuinely humane assistance and to receive an adequate response to their needs, in particular their anxiety and their loneliness. In these cases, the role of families is indispensable, yet, families can receive much help from social welfare agencies and, if necessary, from recourse to palliative care, taking advantage of suitable medical and social services available in public institutions or in the home. In particular, the role of hospitals, clinics and convalescent homes needs to be reconsidered. These should not merely be institutions where care is provided for the sick or the dying. Above all, they should be places where suffering, pain and death are acknowledged and understood in their human and specifically Christian meaning. This must be especially evident and effective in institutes staffed by religious or in any way connected with a church. Agencies and centres of service to life, and all other initiatives of support and solidarity, which circumstances may from time to time suggest, need to be directed by people who are generous in their involvement, and fully aware of the importance of the gospel of life, for the good of individuals and society. A unique responsibility belongs to healthcare personnel, doctors, pharmacists, nurses, chaplains, men and women, religious, administrators and volunteers their profession calls for them to be guardians and servants of human life. In today's cultural and social context, in which science and the practice of medicine risk losing sight of their inherent ethical dimension, healthcare professionals can be strongly tempted at times to become manipulators of life, or even agents of death. In the face of this temptation, their responsibility today is greatly increased. Its deepest inspiration and strongest support lie in the intrinsic and undeniable ethical dimension of the healthcare profession, something already recognised by the ancient and still relevant Hippocratic Oath, which requires every doctor to commit himself to absolute respect for human life and its sacredness. Absolute respect for every innocent human life also requires the exercise of conscientious objection in relation to procured abortion and euthanasia. Causing death can never be considered a form of medical treatment, even when the intention is solely to comply with the patient's request. Rather, it runs completely counter to the healthcare profession, which is meant to be an impassioned and unflinching affirmation of life. Biomedical research, too, a field which promises great benefits for humanity, must always reject experimentation research or applications which disregard the inviolable dignity of the human being and thus cease to be at the service of people and become instead means which, under the guise of helping people, actually harm them. Volunteer workers have a specific role to play. They make a valuable contribution to the service of life when they combine professional ability and generous selfless love. The gospel of life inspires them to lift their feelings of goodwill towards others, to the heights of Christ's charity, to renew every day, amid hard work and weariness, their awareness of the dignity of every person, to search out people's needs, and, when necessary, to set out on new paths where needs are greater, but care and support weaker. If charity is to be realistic and effective, It demands that the gospel of life be implemented also by means of certain forms of social activity and commitment in the political field as a way of defending and promoting the value of life in our ever more complex and pluralistic societies. Individuals, families, groups and associations albeit for different reasons and in different ways all have a responsibility for shaping society and developing cultural, economic, political and legislative projects which, with respect for all And in keeping with democratic principles, will contribute to the building of a society in which the dignity of each person is recognized and protected, and the lives of all are defended and enhanced. This task is the particular responsibility of civil leaders. Called to serve the people and the common good, they have a duty to make courageous choices in support of life, especially through legislative measures in a democratic system where laws and decisions are made on the basis of the consensus of many, the sense of personal responsibility in the consciences of individuals invested with authority may be weakened. But no one can ever renounce this responsibility, especially when he or she has a legislative or decision-making mandate, which calls that person to answer to God, to his or her own conscience, and to the whole of society for choices which may be contrary to the common good. Although laws are not the only means of protecting human life, nevertheless they do play a very important and sometimes decisive role in influencing patterns of thought and behaviour. I repeat once more that a law which violates an innocent person's natural right to life is unjust, and as such is not valid as a law. For this reason, I urgently appeal once more to all political leaders not to pass laws which by disregarding the dignity of the person, undermine the very fabric of society. The Church well knows that it is difficult to mount an effective legal defense of life in pluralistic democracies because of the presence of the strong cultural currents with differing outlooks. At the same time, certain that moral truth cannot fail to make its presence deeply felt in every conscience, the Church encourages political leaders starting with those who are Christians, not to give in, but to make those choices, which, taking into account what is realistically attainable, will lead to the re-establishment of a just order in the defence and promotion of the value of life. Here it must be noted that it is not enough to remove unjust laws. The underlying causes of attacks on life have to be eliminated, especially by ensuring proper support for families and motherhood. A family policy must be the basis and driving force of all social policies. For this reason, there need to be set in place social and political initiatives capable of guaranteeing conditions of true freedom of choice in matters of parenthood. It is also necessary to rethink labour, urban, residential and social service policies so as to harmonise working schedules with time available for the family so that it becomes effectively possible to take care of children and the elderly. Today, an important part of policies which favour life is the issue of population growth. Certainly public authorities have a responsibility to intervene to orient the demography of the population. But such interventions must always take into account and respect the primary and inalienable responsibility of married couples and families and cannot employ methods which fail to respect the person and fundamental human rights, beginning with the right to life of every innocent human being. It is therefore morally unacceptable to encourage, let alone impose, the use of methods such as contraception, sterilization and abortion, in order to regulate births. The ways of solving the population problem are quite different. Governments and the various international agencies must above all strive to create economic, social, public health and cultural conditions which will enable married couples to make their choices about procreation in full freedom and with genuine responsibility. They must then make efforts to ensure greater opportunities and a fairer distribution of wealth so that everyone can share equitably in the goods of creation. Solutions must be sought on the global level by establishing a true economy of communion and sharing of goods in both the national and international order. This is the only way to respect the dignity of persons and families as well as the authentic cultural patrimony of peoples. Service of the gospel of life is thus an immense and complex task. This service increasingly appears as a valuable and fruitful area for positive cooperation with our brothers and sisters of other churches and ecclesial communities, in accordance with the practical ecumenism which the Second Vatican Council authoritatively encouraged. It also appears as a providential area for dialogue and joint efforts with the followers of other religions and with all people of goodwill. No single person or group has a monopoly on the defense and promotion of life. These are everyone's task and responsibility. On the eve of the third millennium, the challenge facing us is an arduous one. Only the concerted efforts of those who believe in the value of life can prevent a setback of unforeseeable consequences for civilization. Let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, Mother of the living, To you do we entrust the cause of life Look down, O Mother, upon the vast numbers of babies not allowed to be born Of the poor whose lives are made difficult Of men and women who are victims of brutal violence Of the elderly and the sick, killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy Grant that all who believe in your Son May proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time obtain for them the grace to accept that gospel as a gift ever new the joy of celebrating it with gratitude throughout their lives and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely in order to build together with all people of good will the civilization of truth and love to the praise and glory of God the creator and lover of life